Let us turn in God's word this evening to Psalm 116. Having partaken this morning of the Lord's Supper, being reminded of the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross for us, how then do we respond? Let's see from God's word how we are to respond. Psalm 116, I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications. Because he hath inclined his ear unto me, therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. The sorrows of death come past me, and the pains of hell get hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then called I upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord, and righteous, yea, our God is merciful. The Lord preserveth the simple. I was brought low, and he helped me. Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore have I spoken. I was greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Lord, truly I am thy servant. I am thy servant and the son of thine handmaid. Thou hast loosed my bonds. I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of thee, O Jerusalem. Praise ye the Lord. Thus far we read God's holy and inerrant word. May God add his blessing upon the reading of his holy scriptures. So on the basis of what we have read in Psalm 116 and many other passages besides that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 32. Since then we are delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ, Without any merits of ours, why must we still do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image, that so we may testify by the whole of our conduct our gratitude to God for his blessings. And... 
that he may be praised by us. Also, that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof, and that by our godly conversation others may be gained to Christ. Cannot they then be saved who, continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives, are not converted to God? By no means. For the Holy Scripture declares that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, covetous man, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or any such like shall inherit the kingdom of God. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the question that this Lord's Day gives unto us to consider is a vitally important question. It's a question that has theological significance as well as very practical significance. The question that this Lord's Day gives to us to consider is why good works? If it is indeed the case, as we were reminded this morning in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that Jesus Christ was delivered for our offenses, that he in that sacrifice that he made there on the cross paid not just for some, but for all of our sins, that there is nothing that we can do that can add to that finished work of Jesus Christ, then the question remains, why good works? Shall we sin that grace might abound? an important question theologically. The church throughout her history has struggled mightily with this question of what is the proper place of good works in the believer's salvation. There are those who teach works righteousness, Pharisees, legalists, who would teach that our works merit or earn with God. That's why good works. In order that that satisfaction that is owed unto God might be completed. On the other end of the spectrum, there are the antinomians who would look scornfully on the place of good works, who would rather not even hear a sermon about good works, but who will insist that because it is all of Jesus Christ, therefore there is no room for admonitions, for exhortations to be brought even from the pulpit. And so the church struggles theologically. What is the place of good works? 
And then it's very important practically as well. It's not just a theological or a doctrinal discussion. Why, why good works? Why do we teach our children to behave? To sit still? To be attentive? Why Christian discipline? Starting with self-discipline. If we don't understand why, then we lack a motive. And oftentimes lose that zeal for the Christian living. And so let us consider this evening as a way of an applicatory sermon to the Lord's Supper this morning, the must of good works. First, we'll consider the reasons that the Catechism gives for us, three reasons listed out in the first answer. Second, the warning given in question and answer 87. And then the blessing is... We are renewed in the image of Jesus Christ. The must of good works. First the reasons, then the warning, then the blessing. The first reason that the Catechism gives for why we must do good works is because Christ, who has redeemed and delivered us by His blood, renews us by His Holy Spirit after His own image. Here's why. That so we may testify by the whole of our conduct, our gratitude to God for His blessings. The starting point of why we must do good works is that these good works arise out of gratitude. And that's where the location within the Heidelberg Catechism where good works are treated is so significant. Good works are treated not in the first section of the Heidelberg Catechism, which was intended by the writers to reveal unto us our sin and our misery. Good works are not treated in the second section of the Heidelberg Catechism, which reveals unto us how we are delivered from our sin and from our misery. But good works are treated in the third section, the third and final section. If you look at the heading. Right above Lord's Day 32, back of the Psalter, the third part of thankfulness. That's why good works. We are not seeking in performing good works to earn or to merit with God, nor are we seeking in our good works to pay back to God for what He has given us. How insulting that would be if we thought that by our good works we could pay back God for what He has given us. If somebody gave you a gift, a large gift, a gift that cost Him the life of His Son, And then you would turn around and say, here's a $5 bill. Thanks for what you did for me. It would be insulting to that individual. We are not in our works attempting to pay God back 
for what he has done for us. But thanksgiving, that's the first and the primary motive for why we perform good works. Psalm 116, verse 12, What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. But I do believe that it is at this very point that oftentimes we as Christians experience a disconnect between the doctrine, the theology that we hold to, and the day-to-day struggles that we experience. You see, one can come to church, and one can sit under the preaching of the Word, and they can hear for, perhaps, having heard this many, many times before in their life, that the reason why we perform good works is gratitude. They can have someone put their finger in their face and say, you ought to say good works because you're thankful. And they can be, that individual can be convinced of the truth of that, that yes, it is out of thanksgiving. I'm not trying to earn or merit with God. I, I know and I believe that gratitude is the reason why I perform good works. But here is the disconnect, beloved. What happens tomorrow morning when the alarm goes off at 6 o'clock and you're tired? And you know that you have to get up because the work of the day calls you to get up. But you feel that you don't have the strength to perform that work of getting up in service to God. The sermon that was preached last night about gratitude being the motive for good work seems like a distant thought. Gratitude is going to get me up out of bed in the morning. You see, is there not oftentimes a disconnect between what we believe on the one hand, that gratitude is why I perform these good works, but then on the other hand, the day-to-day struggles that we have? The reality is, for the child of God, we, we do not always live in the consciousness of who God is and of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. There are seasons even of life that one can go through where if he or she is being honest in self-reflection would admit, I don't feel very thankful. I know I'm supposed to be thankful, but I don't feel that way. I feel tired. I feel overwhelmed. I'm hurting. That is, beloved, your your God-given position in life right now. And we mustn't conclude from that that I'm not a child of God. We mustn't conclude that if I truly am one of God's children bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, that then every single moment 
of every day, I'm going to have joy and happiness in my life. And that that joy and happiness is going constantly to be the power by which I perform a life of good works. The reality is, Canons speaks of richer seasons of grace, which means that there are other times where we do not as keenly experience that grace of God. So what must one do then if lacking gratitude? I urge of you, I call of you to meditate carefully, deliberately, regularly on the Word of God. That's where gratitude comes from. It's in reflecting through the Scriptures on what Jesus Christ has done for me. It's not waiting until that moment where I feel distant from God and feel overwhelmed with hardships. But it is to be a discipline in the Christian's life that he sets apart time to meditate upon what God has done for us. Come with me through Psalm 116 and behold some of the blessings that God has in store for us. One of the first blessings that we have as God's children is that we have access unto God. Psalm 116, verse 2, Because he hath inclined his ear unto me, therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. What a picture here of God inclining or bending his ear down to this earth. That's what our children want, is it not? Children want to know that dad hears them. That dad is not always so busy that he never has any time for them, but children want to know that they are valued, and here's how they are valued, by dad and by mom spending time with them and listening to them. How amazing it is that our God, who holds the heavens and the earth in the hollow of his hand, is never too busy for us, but he inclines his ear unto us. Another blessing that God gives to us, he delivers us. Verse 8, For thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, my feet from falling. And then what does he do after he delivers us? He preserves us in our salvation. He preserves us irregardless of whether on this earth we are powerful and mighty and respected, or whether on this earth we are lowly and despised and even simple. Verse 6, The Lord preserveth the simple. I was brought low, and he helped me. May God so fill our hearts with love and gratitude for him that that gratitude daily lives in our hearts as the power 
by which we perform good works. Second, why good works? The Catechism goes on. Also that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof. And here we see again the personal and the pastoral approach of the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is realistic as it comes alongside of the child of God and seeks to instruct that child of God. And the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism understand the reality that children of God have doubt, real doubt. The writers of the Catechism understood that doubt is one of the chief, if not the very chief tool that the devil uses to try to pry the children of God away from a relationship with Jesus Christ. How intense is this struggle that is felt by those who, who, who struggle with doubt? It's a struggle between heaven on the one hand and hell on the other hand. It's a struggle between knowing that I am a child of God or being fearful of what if I am a child of the devil? It is a struggle so intense that it feels as if one, one's heart is caught in this cruel tug of war where sometimes God by His Holy Spirit is winning as He draws us, pulls us unto Himself, but other times it feels as if the devil is winning as he seeks to draw and pull us unto subservience to Him. So the writers of the Catechism come alongside of that struggling individual, the one who has doubt, and gives unto them this assurance, that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof. We must be careful here not to misunderstand the meaning of this phrase. The catechism is not teaching that faith of itself is unable to give assurance to the child of God. It's not as if faith by itself without works is a, is a weak Faith. It's not saying here that faith of itself would topple over, but it needs crutches to hold it up, prop it up. And the crutches that prop faith up are the crutches of good works. That's not the teaching here of the Catechism. It's not teaching here that the basis of the Christian's assurance is his good works. 
That would be terrible pastoral advice if somebody was doubting with their salvation. They say, well, look at your works. You see all these works that you've done? Now you can be assured of your salvation. Would only plunge that person into deeper misery. My works, they're filthy. There's filthy rags. It's not a single work that one could reflect on in their life and say, yes, that truly was a good, good work that is not tainted at all with sin and with weakness. No, the catechism is not teaching here that the basis of the Christian's assurance or confidence is his or her good works. Rather, what the catechism is teaching here is There is a relationship between faith, which is the gift of God, and good works, which also are the gift of God that He gives unto His children. And the relationship is this, that those two grow side by side. As God gives faith and increase in faith, so God is pleased to give good works. And it's then on that pathway of good works that God is pleased to give unto His child the confidence, the assurance of faith within his heart and in his soul. When one disregards the law of God, when one walks in rebelliousness to God, when they do not humble themselves under the mighty God and cry out earnestly for the forgiveness of their sins in Jesus Christ, and God is not pleased to give unto that individual the assurance of his faith. But it's on that pathway of good works, holiness, that God bestows upon his people the confidence that they are his and that they belong to Jesus Christ. That in the second place is listed in the catechism here as why. Why we must do good works. And then third, what is the final reason here? That by our godly conversation, others may be gained to Christ. Conversation, we understand, does not means simply to the speech that comes off of our lips, talking one with another. But conversation here refers more broadly to the whole of the Christian's walk. Our godly conversation is sanctified, holy, humble living. Godly conversation is guarding our tongues from evil even when we are on the phone with the insurance agent and we are frustrated and they say things that are hard for us to hear. Godly conversation is guarding our tongue. Godly conversation is patience, in the trials of life. Godly conversation is not responding in wrath when the coworker 
hurts us or insults us. Godly conversation is showing love to those who are undeserving of it. It's being bold to speak the truth even when speaking the truth is unpopular and means that I will be reproached. Psalm 116, verse 10, I believed, therefore have I spoken, I was greatly afflicted. Now here, according to the Catechism, is the importance of this godly conversation, namely, that by this holy living, others may be gained to Christ. What a thought of all of the ways that God in his infinite wisdom could draw people unto Jesus Christ. He is pleased to use our godly conversation as a witness to others by which they see Jesus Christ manifested and by which they are gained for Jesus Christ. God could have done it in whatever way he had pleased, been pleased to do it. He could have simply thundered with his voice and others would be gained for Jesus Christ. He could have sent angels and gained them for Jesus Christ. But God is pleased godly conversation by which others may be gained. Matthew 5, verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The world is watching, young people. What do they see in you? Understanding then the motives, the reasons that the Catechism gives to us for good works, the Catechism proceeds to give a warning. It's a sharp warning that is given. It's a warning given to all those who continue in their wicked and ungrateful lives. Question 87, cannot they then be saved who, continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives, are not converted to God? The answer of the Catechism, by no means. The Catechism then lists out several different categories of those who, they continue in such sins, will not receive, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Catechism includes in its list sins against the seventh commandment. No unchaste person, no adulterer shall inherit the kingdom of God. This is a description of the immoral person. The person who entertains evil thoughts in his or her mind. The person might not act out all of the desires of the mind. The person might recognize that to go to that next step is too much. 
but they're willing to entertain the thoughts in their mind. Person caught up in pornography. The person who reads sexually explicit novels written with the very purpose of arousing unholy desires. No unchaste person or adulterer. And as well, it includes sins against the first commandment. No idolater. And a little bit later, the drunkard. The drunkard is an idolater for he worships the bottle. He's captive to it. He's a slave to it. He finds his happiness in it. Idolatry, something we all are guilty of by nature. It's putting our trust in loving, submitting to anyone instead of or besides Jehovah God. No idolater and no drunkard who continues in these sins shall inherit. That includes sins against the eighth and the tenth commandments. No thief, no covetous man, no robber, as well as slanderer, Slanderer is a thief as well. He tries to steal the good reputation of the neighbor by speaking evil of the neighbor behind his back. The important word here in the catechism is the word continue. Cannot they be saved then who continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives? The mark of the child of God is not that they have never committed any of these sins, for then every single one of us would be condemned. But the mark of the child of God is that they are repentant. They are humbled and sorrowful and turn from ways of wickedness when they are confronted in their sins. But there is a warning that is given, a stern warning to persons that do not repent of these sins, but instead who continue in this wickedness. And the warning that's given unto them is that they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And you know why they will not inherit the kingdom of God? It is exactly because they do not want the kingdom of God. They might put on a show of wanting the kingdom of God. They might have a lot of pious speech that comes off of their lips about the kingdom of God. They might be able to wax eloquent in listing off the doctrines and the truths that pertain to the kingdom of God. But those who continue in such sins shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And the reason they will not inherit the kingdom of God is they do not want 
the kingdom of God. Why do they not want the kingdom of God? Because the kingdom of God is holy. It's where holy people gather. Here's the test by which we can know how much we want heaven. How much do you desire holiness? If you're not interested in holiness on this earth, if you are content living a life of wickedness, then by that action you show that you have no interest in the kingdom of God. For God is the thrice holy God who gathers unto himself a holy people to be with him. Not as if we imagine that our holiness is going to earn or merit with God, no. But out of thanksgiving unto God for what he has done for us, we want to be holy because our God is holy. And that leads us to the blessing blessing listed out for us in the beginning of answer 86 is that Christ having redeemed and delivered us by his blood also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image. This is the blessing, beloved, of sanctification being worked in your hearts by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, namely that you are transformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. You are made to resemble God's only begotten Son who is the express image of the Father. That's the blessedness of sanctification. What a standard for beauty is Jesus Christ. There's no one more glorious, no one more admirable, No one more beautiful than God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And now the the amazing truth of salvation is that Jesus not only delivers us from the guilt of our sins, but Jesus also delivers us from the power and the dominion of our sins. Jesus works in us, transforming us by his Holy Spirit so that more and more we are renewed in his image. That beauty, young people, do not let the world set for you the standard of beauty. Jesus is beautiful. And Jesus makes us by his Holy Spirit to be more and more beautiful as he sanctifies us. And so it is then that the goal of performing good works is not for ourselves, for our own glory, but the goal of performing good works always is 
to live for the glory of God. The motive of holiness never is so that I can be distinguished, so that I can stand out from others, so that I can be respected, admired as a holy person. That's pride. But the goal of performing good works is so that not I, but that God would be glorified. For He created us for that very purpose that we would perform works to the praise of His great and holy name. He shaped us. He's given us gifts and abilities. And He calls us to use these abilities. The Catechism speaks of the whole of our conduct to the glory of His name. Not part, not half, not three quarters of our conduct, but the whole of our conduct. It is God who works in us the willing and the doing of His good pleasure. And so we confess with the psalmist in the 16th verse, O Lord, Truly, I am thy servant. I am thy servant and the son of thy handmaid. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God in heaven, we thank thee for thy son, Jesus Christ, who is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Wilt thou work within our hearts, Father, a holy zeal to devote ourselves unto thee. We owe our all unto thee, for thou hast created us, and thou hast redeemed us. Fill us with the holy Spirit, that we might, Father, be prepared for life with Thee in heaven. Do this, we pray, not because of our worth, but because of the worth of Thy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.